The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Just one hour from now, President Joe Biden, nearing his 100th day in office, will deliver his first address to a joint session of Congress. And he'll deliver that speech in the very chamber that was breached by pro-Trump insurrectionists. The same chamber where the mob overwhelmed police and forced lawmakers into hiding just 112 days ago. On that day, January 6th, Trump's former personal attorney, Rudy Giuliani, was inciting violence at a rally outside the White House just before all hell broke loose. So over the next 10 days, we get to see the machines that are crooked, the ballots that are fraudulent. And if we're wrong, we will be made fools of. But if we're right, a lot of them will go to jail. So let's have trial by combat. Wow. Well, we bring up Rudy Giuliani because he abruptly became the lead story today in a made for TV twist for a man who, before he was the mayor of New York City, was once the U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York. Federal investigators in Manhattan executed search warrants early this morning at Giuliani's home and office. The New York Times reports It's part of their probe into whether he violated foreign lobbying laws by doing unregistered work in Ukraine. According to our reporters, agents presented Giuliani with a warrant and requested all electronic devices. Giuliani turned over one cell phone, one iPad and one laptop and nothing else. The agents were at the apartment for approximately 45 minutes. Now, you may not remember all the details of this investigation, given that a lot has happened in the two years since this story emerged. As you may recall, one of the many scandals hovering over the Trump administration was one involving Ukraine. And at the center of that controversy was Rudy Giuliani. Back then, Giuliani was the personal slash TV attorney for Donald Trump. Not a lawyer for Trump, the president, but for Trump, the person. And yet he somehow became the point person for Trump's pressure campaign to fabricate a scandal to pin on the Biden family in Ukraine. We would later learn that Trump pressured Ukraine's government to investigate Biden's son, Hunter, and use military aid as leverage, which led the House to launch an impeachment inquiry, ending in Trump's first impeachment. It was during that impeachment trial that a witness said that Trump wanted nothing less than the Ukrainian president to go to a microphone and say investigations, Biden and Clinton, words that would have damaged Biden. The same way that then FBI Director James Comey reviving the inquiry into Hillary Clinton's emails helped to cost her the election. As we now know, the smear campaign against Biden did not work and Biden would be elected president only to choose an attorney general who may now be Rudy's worst nightmare. According to The New York Times, during the Trump administration, senior political appointees in the Justice Department repeatedly sought to block such a warrant against Giuliani. But after Merrick Garland was confirmed as President Biden's attorney general, the Justice Department lifted its objection to the search. 
And joining me now is New York Times Washington correspondent Michael Schmidt and Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney and MSNBC columnist. And Michael, if you could just clear up for one, sort of if you have this information from your reporting, is this uh, raid on Giuliani, which we now also know that the FBI also raided one of Rudy Giuliani's associates, Victoria Tensing, and she's a lawyer who's close to Giuliani. She had dealings with several Ukrainians, uh, and she's a former federal prosecutor herself and a senior Justice Department official who's represented Dmitry Firtash. Well, you'll remember his name. He's Ukrainian oligarch who's also under indictment. So she's got a lot mixed up in this, too. Do you know if these, um, you know, the raid on Giuliani and uh, serving this warrant to Ms. Tensing, is this information that existed during the Trump administration that was held back by William Barr or is this the result of new information that's come forward? Um, I, I don't think we have complete clarity into everything that the Justice Department has and knows about this issue. As the Times has reported, as my colleagues have reported in the past, the Justice Department uh, senior officials in Washington had stopped uh, prosecutors in New York from executing a search warrant at the end of last year. I don't think that it is a coincidence that we are seeing this happen now, just a week after Lisa Monaco came in as the deputy attorney general. She is going to be the person who oversees the day to day operations of the Justice Department. She's going to be the person who all these investigations run through. And if you were Merrick Garland and you were trying to get your feet under you and the department under you, it would make sense that you would hold off on making some of these important, controversial moves um, until you had a full deck and a full a fully stocked team. So I think that you know we've seen a lot of news out of the Justice Department in the past few days not just about Rudy Giuliani but about other matters and look in the Justice Department you're not supposed to take actions around an election. In the aftermath of the election the the election dragged on but not for legitimate reasons, but it did drag on. And Rudy Giuliani was at the center of it. So there was a political mess there. And, you know, so, you know, look, I'm sure that, you know, people would like for things in this country to move a lot faster. But seeing it, you know, here in April of 2021, um, I guess that's where they are. But, you know, seeing it in April, not just any old day in April, Joyce, on the very day that President Biden, who's, uh, you know, the finalization of whose election Rudy Giuliani sought to stop, whose election he sought to stop on the very day of the near 100 day you know marker and the speech before joint sense of congress is this the, do prosecutors am i wrong to read into it that they're sending some sort of a message here by doing these uh you know this raid today or should we look at that as coincidental I think it has to be entirely coincidental. You know, if this was a movie, maybe we would assume that it was scripted. But prosecutors, by and large, really don't care about what's going on outside of their office. They don't time um, investigative actions to coincide with political ones. The thing that happens if you're a prosecutor and if you've got the evidence that you need, the probable cause you need to get this search warrant, is you want to go at the earliest possible moment because that search warrant isn't given to you with permission to execute it whenever you want to. You've literally got a very tight period of time. Search warrants require what we call fresh information. That means information that there is evidence or fruits of a crime in the location you want to search 
And it's there now, not six months ago, not next week, now. So prosecutors are focused only on that goal of executing the search warrant within the constraints that the judge imposes on them. Okay, well, that's good. Thank you for disabusing me of that notion. Let me, let me for, for those of you who have forgotten this and it's gone into somewhat of the memory hole, here are some impeachment witnesses um, talking, and this is during the impeachment, talking about Giuliani's role vis-a-vis Ukraine. Take a listen. Secretary Perry, Ambassador... Volker and I worked with Mr. Rudy Giuliani on Ukraine matters at the express direction of the President of the United States. President Trump directed us to, quote, talk with Rudy. My recollection is that Ambassador Sondland stated, quote, damn it, Rudy, every time Rudy gets involved, he goes and Fs everything up. What do you think he meant by his characterization of Giuliani as a hand grenade? That the uh, investigations that he was promoting, that the storyline he was promoting, the narrative of uh, he was promoting was going to backfire. I think it has backfired. And the he in that case is John Bolton, the former national security advisor. And I want to uh, big up Nicole Wallace's uh, wonderful team who put that mashup together. And, and so, Michael, can you give us a sense of, you know, what do we know about the contours? We know that this is about foreign lobbying without permission We presume that this is basically along the same lines as the impeachment, right? The contents of the first impeachment. And tied in with the case of Lev Parnas, which bubbled up many, many months ago. I mean, many several years ago. I mean, this is something that has been going on for a long time. You know, the impeachment of of Trump was in is at the end of 2019, the beginning of 2020. I mean, it was it's hard to keep track. I guess that was the first impeachment and the second one and and such and the characters. It's good to have a refresher. But this is an investigation that's been going on for a long time. It looks at it's looking at the question of foreign lobbying. Uh, Giuliani's lawyer coming out today and saying that 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 was on the search warrant, saying that they were also looking for communication with John Solomon, a reporter who had done a lot of the uh, Ukraine reporting that helped push the narrative uh, that Giuliani was seeking. Um, You know, so, you know, this is a search warrant that encompasses a lot of thorny issues for the Justice Department. This that that's a it's someone who calls himself a reporter. This is a lawyer in Rudy Giuliani. It's the president's lawyer. These are these are not easy questions. And I could see why you would want, you know, someone like Lisa Monaco to be in that position before going forward with it. You know, their search warrants are executed in the country every day. They're not executed at lawyers' offices or at their homes, and they're not done in regards to communications with reporters. And you're absolutely right. I mean, just thinking about it, you know, now two of Donald Trump's lawyers have been raided by police, both Michael Cohen and now Rudy Giuliani. Just Donald Trump, if you just go through the rap sheet of People who have been a part of the Trump team, his former campaign manager, uh, Steve Bannon, Michael Flynn, his national security advisor, George Papadopoulos, um, Paul Manafort, who ran his campaign as the executive there, uh, Rick Gates, Michael Cohen. Robert Stone. I mean, it, it is a it is sort of a, a bevy of, of, of all of these people connected to Donald Trump. It's pretty extraordinary for an American president. Let me quickly play. You mentioned Lev Parnas. This was an interview that Lev Parnas gave to our own Rachel Maddow. This was on January 15, 2020, about a month before the February 13, 2020. Impeachment. Take a listen. Do you know if Mr. Giuliani was ever in contact with Mr. Barr specifically about the fact that he was trying to get Ukraine to announce these investigations into Joe Biden? Oh, absolutely. Mr. Barr knew about that. Mr. Barr had to have known everything. 
I mean, it's impossible. Did Rudy Giuliani tell you he'd spoken to the Attorney General specifically about Ukraine? Not only Rudy Giuliani. I mean, Victoria and Joe, are, they were all best friends. I mean, Barr, uh, Barr was, uh, Attorney General Barr was basically on the team. So, okay, he mentions Joe and Victoria. That's Victoria Tensing and Joe DeGeneva. They're a married couple. They're both lawyers. He mentioned William Barr. And I'm going to play one more sound, but this is Donald Trump denying any knowledge of what really Giuliani was up to in Ukraine. Take a listen. Mr. President, how much has Giuliani shared with you about his recent trip to Ukraine? No, not too much, but he's a very great crime fighter. He was probably the greatest crime fighter over the last 50 years. Very smart. He was the best mayor in the history of the city of New York. He's a great person who loves our country, and he does this out of love. Believe me, he does it out of love. Joyce Vance, uh, Victoria Tensing has said that uh, her lawyer has said that she's not a, a target of the investigation. But if you're making a witness list in doing this investigation, and this is your case, are you including Joe DeGeneva? Are you including William Barr? Are you including Donald Trump? It's a really interesting question, Joy, because we don't know what the charges are yet. For instance, if you look at the Parnas and Fruman indictment, they're charged in connection with, with bad election contributions, with straw donors and foreign donors, which, of course, violates U.S. law. Could this be part of that? Is it part of Giuliani's conduct in Ukraine trying to dig up dirt in Biden? It's not really clear what the full scope of this is yet. It feels certain that it's more than just failing to register when you're representing a foreign country. Some of these people could be witnesses. They could be suspects. They could even end up being targets of prosecution. It's premature to, to say at this point, but there's an awful lot of smoke around the president's former lawyer. A whole uh, his lawyers around his whole former team. This is pretty incredible. Uh, what a news uh, day today. Michael Schmidt, thank you so much for being here. Joyce Vance, thank you so much for being here. Appreciate you both. And up next on the readout, uh, it, it is an historic night in Washington. That was just the pre-big story. President Biden is set to deliver his first address to a joint session of Congress. And for the first time in American history, the president will be flanked by not one, but two women leaders, Vice President Kamala Harris and Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And it's the first such address since that House chamber was defiled by the January 6th MAGA insurrectionists. And later, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the man responsible for shepherding President Biden's agenda through the Senate, joins me. The readout continues after this. As his first 100 days come to a close, President Joe Biden is set to give a major speech to a joint session of Congress in just under two hours. And while it's not technically a formal State of the Union address, it will serve the same function. With a decades-long political career that began at age 29, there are few, if any, people in modern politics who have sat through more of these speeches than Joe Biden has, first as a senator for 36 years and then as vice president for eight. He knows it's a big opportunity to not only highlight his accomplishments, but to frame the debate over his agenda moving forward. According to excerpts released late today, Biden will declare that America is on the move again. But he'll emphasize the need to prove that democracy still works, that our government still works and can deliver for the people. Biden will unveil his proposed American Families Plan, which invests in school programs like universal pre-K and community college, as well as providing child care support and paid leave. But this year, the president's speech will look a little different. Thanks to COVID, the audience in the chamber will be paired back to about 200 people. That means fewer lawmakers, no guests, no cabinet officials, and just one Supreme Court justice in attendance. 
This is the first joint session of Congress since the January 6th insurrection, when a violent pro-Trump mob temporarily halted the count of electoral votes and literally forced members of Congress to flee for their lives. That means that Joe Biden will be addressing some of the very people who not only promoted the big lie, but who voted with the mob to overturn his election. Advanced excerpts of Biden's speech show that he will refer to the events of January 6th as the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. This evening also represents a significant landmark for this country. Since the dawn of the TV age, the overwhelming majority of these speeches have featured a similar backdrop. That is, two white men filling the seats reserved for the Speaker and the House, Speaker of the House and the Vice President. It was Nancy Pelosi who broke the mold in 2007 when she became the first Madame Speaker. Now, with the election of Kamala Harris, tonight's speech will mark the first time in history that two women, including one woman of color, will be seated in the dais behind the president of the United States. And joining me now is Yamiche Alcindor, White House correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and Michael Beschloss, NBC News presidential historian. And I want to start where I ended there with you, Yamiche, because, you know, it's, it's kind of odd to me, and I don't know if it is to you as a journalist that's covered the White House and has covered multiple White Houses, that the ascension of that back row of, of Kamala Harris and Speaker Pelosi, who will be seated there. And this has never happened in American history, a woman of color and, and a woman speaker. It kind of happened kind of without comment. It, it's weird how it's just happened. And it's, it's not controversial or remarkable uh, anymore. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Well, that really is because so many people have been pushing to make this in some ways unremarkable, making it somewhat normal to see women in high-powered positions, to see a woman as vice president and as speaker of the House. Nancy Pelosi herself has been a trailblazer in the Democratic Party, really putting a face to exactly what women can do. Talking to people at the White House, talking to sources at the White House today, my understanding is that President Biden will be leaning into the historic nature of this address. It, of course, is his first address to Congress, but he'll also be talking about what you were just talking about. Only 112 days ago, a mob stormed into the building that I'm now standing in, um, trying to stop President Biden from being president, even though, of course, he was legitimately elected. Um, So this is also a moment where White House officials tell me he's going to really be leaning in on the idea that we have to restore faith to democracy, that we have to really be giving Americans the tools to survive and thrive. And part of that is also focusing on workers, specifically focusing on women workers. We know a number of them have dropped out of the workforce during the pandemic, so he's going to be talking about that. So while this isn't going to be something that he's going to, I think, maybe focus on the two women standing behind him, what he's going to be talking about in his speech 
speech goes straight to that, talking about racial justice, talking about the need to change policing in this country. All of those things are going to be top of mind as he takes to the podium with those two women in those historic positions. Yeah, I mean, it will be remarkable to see. But, Michael, that is the thing that is different. I mean, I, I, I don't know how people have tried to minimize what happened on January 6th. I can't get it out of my mind. Uh, I'm sure that you can't get it out of your mind as a historian, right. as just as a human being. Uh, but it, it strikes me that not only will Biden, as Yamish said, be there talking about what he's calling the, mo- the worst attack on our country since the Civil War, strong language, but he'll be doing it in front of some of the insurrectionist supporters. Ted Cruz will be there. Uh, people like uh, Kevin McCarthy, who voted to overturn the election, Lauren Boebert, Representative Andy Biggs, who was said by even Ali Alexander, who was one of the organizers, hey, he helped me do this. Um, Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, Roger Marshall, Rick Scott. That to me is, I don't know, what is it to you? Uh, I think it is strange and horrible and something we didn't even see at the time of the Civil War because, you know, when Abraham Lincoln would send a message to the Congress, he wasn't sending it to Jefferson Davis and people like that who had served in Congress because they fled, you know, the South Mm -hmm. seceded and they were gone. Uh, And the result was that Lincoln, at least when he, you know, sent messages to Congress, was sending messages to people who, by and large, wanted to see the nation survive. So that's a little bit different. And this was the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. You know, Pearl Harbor cost maybe 2,400 lives and 9-11, another terrible attack, 3,000. But in those cases, our democracy was not in jeopardy. Just as Yamish was saying, think of the 6th of January, if those terrorists who uh, committed that attack on our capital had been a little bit faster, they could have and probably would have executed the vice president, executed the Speaker of the House, executed other members and leaders of Congress, possibly started a hostage crisis, kidnapped the mahogany boxes in which there were ballots that were saying that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris would be the next president and vice president. Had that happened, I have no doubt they would have demanded that Joe Biden's inauguration be suspended and perhaps insisted that Donald Trump be uh, re-inaugurated as president as the price of ending this hostage crisis. Yeah. And just, so just to make that point, um, let me play for you. And those of you who haven't seen the whole interview, you should really see it. Accommodations to my friend Don Lemon at CNN, who interviewed Michael Fanon. Um, you've seen him on TV before talking about his experience, but not like this. This is part of that interview where he talked about what he experienced on January 6th as a Capitol Police officer. I experienced a group of individuals that were trying to uh, kill me to accomplish, you know, their goal. Yeah, I mean, I experienced the most brutal, uh, savage, uh, hand-to-hand combat of my entire life. How we managed to make it out uh, of that day without more significant loss of life is a miracle. And these are people that Senator Ron Johnson has described as people he didn't fear at all. He thought they were fine. Mm. Donald Trump said he loved them. I, I cannot get past that, Michael Beschloss. And th- there will be Capitol Police officers stationed uh, there as well. And they're, you know, I, I, it's, it's an interesting thing that they're all going to have to re-experience together on this momentous night. That's exactly right. And one nice thing about this evening is that for Joe Biden to go in there and give a speech in a way that seems similar to the way that other presidents have all the way back to George Washington, 
sort of closes the circle. But the danger to democracy is still there, as Joe Biden is also going to say tonight. There are still groups in this country, even in Congress, just as you were saying, Joy, who would like to see this union torn apart, who are plotting against our democracy. If Joe Biden fails as president, that might be more likely. And 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 if exactly. And then there's if he succeeds as president, um, Yamish, because Joe Biden has has given himself a very lengthy to do list. Uh, what the things that he's already gotten through, the, the, the you know, the Recovery Act was one point nine trillion dollars. It's pretty huge. Rejoining the Paris Climate Accord and things like that. The sanctions on Russia, the ending the war in Afghanistan and bringing our troops home. So that's a big deal. But the things he wants to do another one point eight trillion dollars in this American family plan, two trillion in an American infrastructure plan, voting rights legislation, the George Floyd Justice Act seems awfully urgent. Uh, the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act, uh, rolling back tax cuts to corporations, things that are really popular, that poll really well. He's already accomplished probably the biggest thing on his to-do list, which is start to beat back the pandemic that's killed you know, more than half a million Americans. What is the White House, how big is he going to go on the pressure that he will use this speech to try to put on those self-same Republicans who he's got to deal with to try to get this agenda through? Well, this speech and this big moment for President Biden is going to be all about pushing Congress, pushing lawmakers, the people standing right in front of him, sitting right in front of him to do something and to legislate. He's going to be talking about $6 trillion in spending. If you take them all together, there's the American Rescue Act, which, of course, was focused on COVID, the jobs plan, which is really about jobs and infrastructure and roads and bridges, and then the Families Act, which is, of course, education and health care and medical leave and all of the different things that the president says will be really a generational investment to help Americans survive and thrive amid this pandemic and this economic crisis, along with the racial reckoning. So a lot of this is going to be the president ticking through saying, you need to pass the Policing Act, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. You need to pass immigration so that DACA recipients, dreamers, as well as farm workers and immigrants in this country who have contributed so much without legal status, that they should all get a pathway to citizenship. He's going to be talking about um, the role that the vice president is planning and trying to root out the, the, the root causes of immigration um, issues uh, working with the Northern Triangle countries. And he's also been focusing on trying to also just pass legislation on gun reforms, talking about the tragedies that we've all had to live with, these mass shootings. So the president really is going to be talking at length about all the different ways that he wants to see these lawmakers actually act and yeah. pass legislation. Uh, I, I'll say it again. People like government, they can see and feel in front of them. They, they can see it in their bank account. They can see it in the roads. They can see it in a bridge. They can see it in their lives. That's what people, and, and he understands that. Uh, that is his superpower. One of his superpowers. Uh, the other one is kindness. Yamiche Alcindor, Michael Beschloss, thank you both very much. Coming up, we are still waiting for authorities to release body cam footage from that deadly shooting last week in North Carolina. Meanwhile, there's yet another case of a man dying under an officer's knee, this time in California. We'll be right back. President Biden is expected to make police reform a central focus of tonight's address, and it couldn't come at a more critical time. Despite a week of protests from the community in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, today a judge denied a request to release body camera footage of the shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. by sheriff's deputies to the public. 
for at least the next 30 days. He cited ongoing investigations. And Brown's family won't get to see additional footage until the faces of the deputies involved are blurred to protect their identities. The judge did order that four body cam videos and one dash cam be made available to the family within the next 10 days, as opposed to the one 22nd video the family viewed on Monday. In a statement, family attorney Ben Crump said he was disappointed, quote, in this modern civil rights crisis where we see black people killed by the police everywhere we look. Video evidence is the key to discerning the truth and getting well-deserved justice for victims of senseless murders, unquote. Body camera footage is the focus of another death in police custody, this one of 26-year-old Mario Gonzalez in California on April 19th. Video released today showed Alameda police officers pinning him to the ground for several minutes face down. And we should warn you, this video is disturbing. Oh, no wonder. There, I got it. What do you have? Sorry. No, it's not that. No, it wasn't that. No. Stop, 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 stop. No. Police claimed that they attempted to detain Gonzalez and a physical altercation ensued and that he suffered a medical emergency. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Minneapolis police made the same initial claim about the death of George Floyd. So we're just going to wait to see how that investigation plays out. At a rally demanding release of the body cam video yesterday, Gonzalez's brother said his brother's death in police custody was in the same manner as George Floyd's. President Biden is expected to make a renewed push tonight to pass the police reform bill named for George Floyd, the Justice in Policing Act, which Vice President Kamala Harris co-authored as a California senator. Joining me now, Paul Butler, Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor, and Mark Claxton, retired NYPD detective and director of the Black Law Enforcement Alliance. Paul, I want to go to you first on the refusal to release this video. Um, they're making the statement uh, that essentially people will see the video and jump to conclusions, but people are already jumping to conclusions. What do you make of this denial of the release? Uh, the judge is claiming releasing the video now will impact the investigation. That's a common excuse when the cops don't want the public to see something. Joy, we've seen more transparency in other high profile cases. In Columbus, Ohio, video was released within hours of the shooting of Micaiah Bryant. The same in Chicago after the police killed Adam Toledo. With Mr. Brown's killing, I think there's a legitimate concern about a cover-up. If the video exonerated the cops, I think we would have seen it by now. That is the point, and I think that is clear. Uh, and, you know, Mark, um, just to, just on the Alameda case, because we're trying to keep all of these cases uh, in our minds at the same time, um, but there are similarities between that case, uh, it, the statement that was put out, and the statement that was put out on George Floyd. In George Floyd's case, they say officers were able to get the suspect into handcuffs and noted he appeared to be suffering medical distress. Officers called for an ambulance. He was transported to Hennepin County Medical Center, an ambulance where he died a short time later. That was a lie. And here in the Mario Gonzalez case, that officers attempted to detain the man and a physical altercation ensued. At that time, the man had a medical emergency. Officers immediately began life-saving measures and requested the Alameda Fire Department to the scene. Alameda Fire Department transported the male to a local area hospital where he later died. These almost read like cookie-cutter statements that are put out that just pop out of a vending machine. And that's why I, I, I like to refer to them as claims. I don't even say they said. I just say they claim because you really, they fall apart so often. Yeah, Jordan. Unfortunately, we're stuck in this tragic time loop where black and brown bodies are routinely now on, on a regular basis uh, just killed 
at the hands of, of law enforcement. We're, we're getting a witness not only the, the apathy of, of, of government in large part over these killings, but the, the, the ugly underside of what has become the policing profession, which forces us uh, to make some harsh decisions moving forward as to whether or not how we want to proceed with this policing thing. What's let me, our let me ask you this question, best? Mark. Let me ask you this question because you're a former law enforcement officer. What is going on? Does it feels like after the initial Black Lives Matter movement started to build up, there was a reduction in violence? That the police took a second thought and took a step back before committing violence. This feels like an escalation. Does it feel like that to you? Um, the only reason it does not feel like an escalation to me is because I've realized and I've been connected to some of these stories for a very long time. This has been happening. For a long time, it's just that we are now more in tune and covering it differently and, 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 and really discussing the issues much more in depth than we've ever done. But yeah. if you look historically, these cases are not new. It's just that there's more video and there's more opportunity to discuss uh, these issues. Uh, Paul, the one of the jurors in the Chauvin trial has um, spoken out. Uh, he was on the Today Show. This juror was on the Today Show. Let's take a listen to what they said. I thought the evidence that the evidence was overwhelming that he was guilty, in my opinion. Um, I, th- I thought it was a no brainer, like I said, after Dr. Tobin and, and all the other witnesses. And all- we're everyday civilians that put our our families, our jobs and our days aside um, to serve justice, to serve justice. I and mean, we walked in with an open mind and we were waiting to see, you know, we, we did our due diligence to see what the defense was going to come up with. We just felt like the evidence was overwhelming for our verdict. It had nothing to do with pressure from anywhere. And it's important that he said that at the end. But it did, I think, I, I, I wouldn't be wrong, would I, to say they had something to do with also the makeup of the jury being multiple races, not being an all-white jury, being a jury that included people who had a bit more skepticism of police's side of the story. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. It was a jury that looked like America, and that made a huge difference. We learned from this jury that the video impacted the jury the same way it impacted the world. They watched it while they were deliberating, and they chose to believe their own eyes. Yeah. Uh, I want to also note for you really quickly to say with you, Paul, for just a moment, we do now know that the Georgia men who killed Ahmad Aubrey uh, are going to be charged with hate crimes. Uh, Three Georgia men, they were indicted today by a federal grand jury in the Southern District uh, of Georgia, charged with hate crimes and the attempted kidnapping of Ahmad Aubrey. The indictment also charges two of the men with separate counts of using firearms during that crime of violence. What's the significance of that? Because one of these men is a former police officer, too. Yeah, so the significance, Joy, is that race matters and race will be an issue in this case. In other cases, like the Chauvin trial, where everybody knows race is an important factor, it doesn't come up. So I think this will give the victim's family some resolution, some, if not closure, at least acknowledgement that one reason that Mr. Arbery was killed is because he is black. Uh, Let's... uh 
to take a big step back, Mark, I've seen you talking about this on other shows and I want to get you back on this again. And I'm sorry if you feel like you're asked this every time that you're on TV, but what the hell do we do about this? Because honestly, police have just lost so much credibility. You know, we just went through the fact that when I see a police statement, I call it a claim. I can't even say they said, because you just don't know whether to believe it or not. It seems so cookie cutter and designed to just exculpate the officers no matter what. These police unions seem to stand in the way of any kind of reform. There's no transparency. We can't get the body cam footage. What the heck, what do we do to make this a system that people feel that is worth paying tax money for? Uh, what we do is to demand full transparency and, and really take a good look at the underside that I mentioned earlier and also recognize that policing is just one arm of, of a, a quote unquote crooked system, if you will. And all the calls for significant and substantive police reform, which I support fully, will not heal what ails us because you have court systems and you have that structure that's all part of this larger criminal justice picture. So, but the first step is to, to, to really modernize your police concept, define it better, and, na- and have clear national standards. And it feels, Paul, like there almost has to be a bifurcation. Jason Johnson has said this a bunch, that you almost need to have a public safety position and you have need of a police system because you do need somebody to investigate crime. And police are really good at that. But this other thing where they're out writing tickets for somebody with, you know, dice hanging in the back of their car or for minor infractions or responding to, you know, people who are having a mental health crisis, sending a person who's trained in violence to deal with most of this stuff just seems like nonsensical at this point, particularly when it comes to black and brown people. That's exactly right, Joy. The man in Oakland, California, or Alameda, the call was for drinking in public. Eric Garner allegedly selling a Lucy cigarette, George Floyd using a counterfeit $20 bill. They all ended up dead. To enforce those petty crimes, we don't need people who are licensed to kill. People should get tickets for misdemeanor offenses. When the cops show up, the situation escalates into tragedy far too often. We have a whole kind of police that just give you tickets on your car. (laughs) If you could come up with that system, which is also just revenue based, you can come up with something else for the majority of this stuff and let police be detectives and solve crimes. That to me seems like the Occam Razor solution. But you guys are the professionals. Thank you both. Paul Butler, Mark Claxton. Thank you both. Really appreciate you. And up next, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is here to talk with us about Biden's address tonight, voting rights, policing reform, infrastructure, you name it. We have got a lot to talk about. And on Friday night, Hillary Clinton, former senator, former secretary of state, former presidential nominee, joins me as we discuss President Biden's first 100 days. You do not want to miss that. Stay with us. Just about an hour from now, President Biden will return to the Capitol, the place where he spent more than three decades of his professional life. But this time it will be to deliver his first address to Congress as president of the United States. While in the House chamber, still scarred from the Trump-inspired, Republican-sanctioned insurrection, Biden will lay out an ambitious plan to invigorate the country's infrastructure and invest in the American people. The man in charge of confronting Republican obstruction and getting that legislative agenda through the Senate is Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, who joins me now. Uh, Leader Schumer, thank you very much for being here. And I'm just going to jump right into the, the, the thing that I'm the most obsessed about, which is voting. Uh, it, it, because it's without voting, you get nothing else, right? Um, and I want to let you listen to 
what Joe Manchin, um, the senator from West Virginia, has said about using, or I'll read to you, what he said about using the filibuster to, uh, on the For the People Act, basically getting rid of the filibuster to put through this critical voting bill. He says, how in the world could you, uh, with the tension we have right now, allow a, a voting bill to restructure the voting of America on a partisan line? I'm not going to be a part of it. To me, that contains a lie. Because it's not restructuring voting on a partisan line. It's letting everyone vote. That's not partisan. That's American. If he's talking like that, will anything else be able to get through? If he is, a, if he is more in, 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 you know, devoted to the filibuster than he is to voting rights, I, how do we get anywhere? Well, first, let me say I couldn't agree with you more. Voting rights is fundamental to our society. What these Republican legislatures are doing is despicable. Uh, when you lose an election in a democracy, Joy, you try to win over the people you lost. When you lose an election in an autocratic, dictatorial type government, you take people off the rolls. And what they're trying to do is make it harder for poor people, people of color, young people, urban people to vote. It's despicable and it cannot stand. So the question is, how do we get it done? Mm -hmm. And there are a number of members of my caucus who say, let's try things in a bipartisan way. Let's see if we can get Republicans to join us in dealing with this sacred issue of voting rights. And they're going to try. And hey, God bless them. If they can get Republicans to join us in big, bold reform, not dilute, half-baked reform, that would be the best way to go. But, but if they can't get us, if they can't get us to join them, mm -hmm. then we will have to put our heads together and figure out a way to get it done. As I've said before, and I've said this to all of my colleagues, failure is not an option. Voting is too sacred and everything will be on the table to get it done. But they want their chance mm -hmm. to prove bipartisanship. They'll have their chance. But that if the, we cannot get bipartisanship for big, bold relief, Everything will be on the tape. You did tell my colleague and friend Mehdi Hassan that you do have a deadline in terms of passing major election reform, yes. probably around August. Is that around the time that you then go back to a Joe Manchin, to a Kristen Cinema who, you know, sort of trolled her supporters with like a, you know, some bling on her finger? It's, it's, she's doing things that even seem trolling at this point. And Manchin is being very ostentatious and basically saying, I am more devoted to the old Jim Crow filibuster than I am to voting rights or to anything, to infrastructure for my own state. I don't care. He's made it very clear. What what tools do you have if we get to August and they're still saying no? What can you do well, to get them off the dime? First, the reason August, I, I said on your colleague's uh, show, was because if we wait till much past August, then these horrible changes that these Republican legislatures are putting into effect may not be undone in time for the 2022 elections. Because, you know, you have the primaries in some of these states in February or March or whatever. So we have to get it done by then, about then. And basically, we will look at every option. Uh, again, I have some colleagues who are not now, as you stated, uh, for um, going at it alone. They want to try bipartisanship. I'm willing to give them a little time to try that bipartisanship, but two points, yeah. two points. One, we cannot have bipartisanship like we sort of did in 2009 and dilute everything. So it's not very real. It has, this is sacred and you can't have it half baked. You've got to protect voting rights, period. And second, um, we will not let them drag it out and drag it out and drag it out. But I've already said to the handful of my colleagues, 
go start talking to the Republicans now, see what they're willing to do. Uh, they may not be willing to do everything, but they want the chance at this at this time. I think that's fair to give them the chance, but not to let it get in the way. Failure is not an option, no matter what the Republicans do. And I promise this will be my last question, my last shot at this. What is your leverage, though? Is this is this a case where the, the Democratic Senate Congressional Committee says if you want to you know, be fully supported by us, you have you know, fundraising leverage? What is the leverage that you have over leverage people like we have. and Manchin? The biggest leverage we have first is the merits. This is not what a democracy does. And I think they admit that. I mean, I think cinema supports S1. You know, I named it S1 after HR1 because mm-hmm. I thought it was so important. So the biggest leverage we have is this is the right thing to do. But second, there's more leverage. Our caucus is going to know if we enact these laws, it makes the chances of us keeping the majority. If we fail to uh, if we fail to block these laws, I mean, uh, it, the chances of our, our caucus retaining the majority and people who are up for re-election like Kelly and Warnock winning is greatly diminished. Yeah. Let's go to some of these other things. I mean, you've got voting rights, infrastructure, police reform, gun reform, immigration, yeah. DACA. It's a very big menu of things. But, you know, here's what I want to say, Joy. Tonight yeah. is a great night. First, we're going to have President Biden, not President Trump, sitting there. Someone who's interested in the truth, who's interested in improving the lives of the poor and the middle class. Second, you're going to have two women sitting behind him, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris, who is also going to be the first woman of color to sit there and be as as vice president. But third, and maybe more important than that great symbolism we have, is he's going to propose a, a big, bold plan to help America dealing with traditional infrastructure, dealing with green infrastructure, but also dealing with human infrastructure. The parts of this bill are so important. Human capital is as important. I'm not saying one is better than the other. You need both, you know, as roads, bridges, et cetera, to improve child care, to improve paid sick leave, to make pre-K universal, to make community college free. That's going to make us a much stronger country. And it's been ignored for too long. So this is really a good day. And then he will propose you know, the way to pay for it by undoing a lot of the Trump tax yeah. cuts. We are, we are out of went time. To the top 1%. We are out of time. Do you have Sorry. a quick thought on your fellow New Yorker, Rudy Giuliani and his travails very quickly? Well, you know, for the first time now, we have a justice department that will follow the law and unturn every stone. It's not like the Trump justice department. I have faith they will find everything. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, thank you for spending some time with us this evening. Really appreciate it. Nice to be with you. Thank you. All right. Don't go anywhere, everybody. I will be back in just a moment with my pals, Brian Williams, Rachel Maddow, Nicole Wallace for live coverage of President Biden's first address to a joint session of Congress. You do not want to miss it. It's going to be the gang all back together. Stay with us. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.